Well, when you guys think of the Reformation, I wouldn't be surprised if you think about the famous 95 Theses that Martin Luther nailed up on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. Scholars uh, point out that that singular event was really the spark that ignited the entire Protestant Reformation. It took place on October 31st, 1517, and that's why we've been celebrating here at our church and people are celebrating across the world the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. But you know, there was actually another set of theses written in dispute of prominent Catholic teachings that also played a significant role in the Reformation, but it doesn't get nearly the same amount of attention, and it's probably because there are only 67 of them compared to Martin Luther's 95. On January 29th, 1523, this is six years after Luther's uh, hammer and nail, the Swiss reformer, Ulrich Zwingli, stood before the Council of Zurich before a crowd of 600 observers, and there he powerfully defended his 67 theses. Zwingli was a Catholic priest who began to do something back in those days that Catholics, including priests, rarely ever did. He began to study his Bible in the original languages. Not necessarily because he feared for his own soul, as, as Martin Luther did and had, what motivated him. Zwingli just wanted to more properly teach his people. But as he began to study the word in its original languages, and as he began to memorize large portions of the New Testament in Greek through his study, he realized how many Catholic practices could not stand the scrutiny of Scripture. Eventually, Zwingli began to openly oppose such practices, like the practice of pilgrimages, of praying to the saints. He questioned the existence of purgatory and the issuing of indulgences in order to shorten your stay there. He began to argue that Christ's death on the cross was, was taught in Scripture as a complete sacrifice that had no need to be repeated regularly through the Mass. And the biggest shot against the Roman church was Vingley's insistence that Christ was the true head. He was the true head of the church and that he rules through his word and not through a pope. And so you can understand why the pope demanded that Zurich expel Zwingli from his pulpit and hand him over to church authorities. But Zwingli was able to convince the, the city magistrates to instead hold a public disputation on these particular matters. And there he stood in front of the city council, in front of 600 others, in order to debate his theological opponents who were sent from Rome. And point by point, Zwingli reasoned through his 67 theses. They were short, pointed statements summarizing the gospel and including a number of church reforms that flow logically out of the gospel. And his main point is found in theses number two and three, which just perfectly encapsulate this morning's theme of solus Christus. Let me read to you theses number two and three. First two, the sum and substance of the gospel is that our Lord Jesus Christ 
The true Son of God has made known to us the will of his heavenly Father and has with his sinlessness released us from death and reconciled us to God. Three, hence Christ is the only way to salvation for all who ever were, are, and shall be. Zwingli was masterful in his defense, and he came away that day as the victor. The city council accepted his theses, and they ruled that from then on, only preaching that was biblical would be legal in the city of Zurich. The authorities became the champion of his ideas, and they were even the defender of Zwingli against further persecution. I believe the power in Zwingli's defense of his theses was, was really derived from his assessment of the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. It was derived in his assessment that in the unique personhood and in the finished work of salvation of Christ, that was his strength. In other words, his defense was deeply rooted in this conviction that we call solus Christus. That means Christ alone. This reformational principle teaches that Jesus is the sole mediator between God and man. He has accomplished everything necessary for our salvation, and therefore, what that then means is that we have nothing to add to his finished work, and we have really no need for any human mediator. We have Jesus. Well, that, of course, is a direct challenge to the Catholic priesthood. That's a direct challenge to the Catholic sacramental system. But, you know, beyond just critiquing Catholicism, my goal this morning is to show you how solus Christus is really a direct challenge to many of our own temptations to add to the finished work of Christ and to turn to other sources in order to experience the fullness of God within the Christian life. So we're going to do this this morning by, by, by studying what I think was probably one of the most Christ-exalting passages in all of Scripture. I want to draw, I want to draw some, some observations out of Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to, to 20. Six observations regarding the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ our Lord, focusing on his supremacy Insufficiency. So before we begin, though, I, I think I need to give you some background information so you can understand what spurred the Apostle Paul to write this letter to the church in Colossae. Uh, it's, it's believed that there was, in those days, a dangerous teaching that was going on throughout the church. Uh, if you actually look in chapter 2, verse 16, Paul makes indirect reference to someone there, someone who was passing judgment on them. Biblical scholars think that this false teacher was claiming to have superior insight into the uh, spiritual, angelic realm, and, and, and this guy was advocating for the practice of, of ascetic rites and rituals, for the stringent uh, uh, avoidance of certain taboos, of things you don't eat, that you don't touch, and all of this was as a means of protecting yourself from evil spirits who are seeking to do you harm. The, the idea here is that this teacher was influenced largely by, by a blend of Judaism and popular folk religion. And this is within this kind of, 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 kind of, of 
um, kind of folk religion, this is where basically uh, angels were, were frequently turned to. You would call upon angels for protection uh, to help you ward off evil spirits. And this was, this was kind of being integrated within Christian teaching as well. And so what Paul, when he hears about this syncretic blend of Judaism, popular folk religion, Christianity, he, he hears about all this false teaching. He recognizes in that there is a danger of devaluing the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. It's turning believers away from their fullness of salvation in Christ and towards what he calls a, a self-made religion that is putting trust in other people and other, other angelic powers apart from Christ. And to that, he wants to honor Christ, he wants to magnify Christ, and he pens this beautiful hymn, Exalting Christ. So the first point he makes is in chapter one, verse 15, and this is, if you're following along in your um, uh, outline, you can find in your bulletin, I've listed out all six observations. The first one is this. We see here that Christ is the only eternal Son of God. Look with me at verse 15. I'll read that again. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now notice with me Paul's emphasis on the invisibility of God. He's stressing that divine attribute that he mentions elsewhere in his letters. Let me just read to you, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 16, he praises God who, quote, alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. That idea of God's invisibility, that, that harmonizes well with what also the Apostle John teaches, um, like in his gospel. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18, where he says, No one has ever seen God. No one. Well, now, in the Old Testament, Moses is said to have come the closest. There's this place in Exodus, chapter 33, where Moses pleads with God for a chance to be able to see his glory. Please show me your glory, he asks. But to that, the Lord warns, But you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. You will perish if you see me. So when the time comes for God to pass by Moses, he shields the prophet's eyes and he only gives him a glimpse of his backside. That's as close as anyone really gets. And after that, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, anytime someone was given just even a mere glimpse of the glory of the Lord, it says that they were just downright terrified. They would fall on their faces as dead. They would confess their wretchedness. What that demonstrates to me is that God is invisible to us, not just because he's a spirit, he doesn't have a body. No, God is invisible to us because we are blinded by our own wretchedness, by our sin. Our blindness to God is not due merely to a physical inability, but to a moral one. God is invisible, not because he's, he's hiding from us, but because we, in our sinfulness, we, we would be consumed by the sight of his white-hot, radiant holiness. We cannot live 
in his presence. Remember the, the solar eclipse? I mean, with all the stuff that's been going on in our city, I, 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 it seems like such a long time ago, right? But remember when that happened, all the warnings against looking directly at the eclipse, you don't look at the sun, it'll burn your eyes, it's dangerous. I, so I remember that, that very day, Henry and I, we, we, we were peering into this man-made box, this man-made viewing box, so instead of staring at the sun, we were looking at an image of the sun being cast in the box. It was really the only way to be able to see the brilliance of the sun in all of its glory without burning our eyes out. I think that's a lot like what it means to see God through Jesus, the image of the invisible God. That word for image there is the word icon in Greek. It's where we get the English word icon. So Christ is the icon of God. Now, now that doesn't mean that he's merely a portrait, that he's merely a, a figurative representation of God. No, the emphasis on calling him the icon of God is to emphasize Jesus's ability to perfectly reflect and to reveal the fullness of God. As the icon of God, Jesus lets you finally see God for yourself. And we should add, most importantly, so you can see him for yourself in safety, without perishing, without being consumed by his holiness. You know, the Apostle John goes on. In, in, I, I just quoted to you 1 John 1.18, where he says no one has ever seen God. You know what he goes on to say? But the only God who is at the Father's side, he, that is Christ, has made him known. Because as Paul puts it later on in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, for in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, if you look back at our verse, chapter 1, verse 15, <clears throat> Paul goes on to say Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the icon of God, the firstborn of all creation. He's the firstborn. Now, don't get tripped up by that word, that word firstborn. It's not referring here to the order of creation. It's not suggesting that Christ was born first and then everything else in creation was subsequently born after him. No, firstborn used in a biblical sense is more focused on being first in rank, first in honor and status. That's why you can have a verse like Psalm 89, verse 27. Psalm 89, verse 27. There, there it's referring to King David, and there King David is called God's firstborn. But if you know anything about David's story, you know that he was actually the youngest in his family, he wasn't the, actually the oldest son, and you know he wasn't even the first king of Israel. It was Saul. So in what sense was he the firstborn? He was firstborn in honor. He was firstborn in preeminence. And the same goes for Christ. He is the preeminent son. And according to the ancient laws of primogeniture, all that belongs to the father belongs to the Son. 
And that's why ancient Christians well understood that the Son of God is no created being. Rather, he eternally exists with God the Father through an eternal sonship. Jesus, and Jesus alone, is the eternal Son who perfectly reveals the invisible God for us to to know him personally and intimately. And that's why Christianity insists Christianity says that there is no salvation found elsewhere. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. All other teachers, all other leaders of other religions merely claim to know the way to God. They will point to you a certain lifestyle to live, a certain level of devotion to give, and to say, if you go this way, like I went that way, you will find God. But Christ, Christ alone claims to be the way. He claims to be God in the flesh. All other religions are like people telling you, it's okay. It's okay to look at the solar eclipse with your own eyes. It's okay, it's okay to look with, with these false glasses. But only through Christ can you see God and not perish. He is the only eternal Son who makes the Father known. That's our first observation. We keep on reading in verse 16. There's a second observation regarding the supremacy of Christ. We see here that Christ is the only creator of all things. Look with me there in verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now the emphasis there really is on all things. It's repeated a couple times. As John puts it in John chapter 1, verse 3, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Just think about that. Everything that was made was made by Jesus. And that implies then that Jesus doesn't fall under the category of things that were made. He's not made, he's the maker. He was present there in Genesis chapter 1 when God spoke the word, the Logos, created. Now in verse 16, Paul makes a point of stressing that all things here include all angelic beings, all demonic powers, the mention of thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. It's commonly recognized by commentators to be references to angelic and demonic forces. All of them were created by Jesus. If that's so, if all heavenly and earthly powers derive their existence from Christ, then Paul is is wondering why, why would Christ need help to accomplish the fullness of your salvation from from these angelic beings? Paul is bewildered why any Christian would be enticed to pray to an angelic being for help and protection from evil spirits. Why don't you just turn to Christ Call out to him. He is the one who created them all. He is the one who, according to chapter 2, verse 15, by nailing your sins to the cross, he he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Those same 
those same spiritual forces. He disarmed them and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So earthly and heavenly powers have no control over Christ. So so praying to anyone for their help in persuading Christ to act on your behalf, that's just pointless. And it's demeaning to Christ. And that's why the reformers, they railed against the mediatorial role of human priests and, and, and the whole practice of praying to deceased saints, asking the saints to intercede on your behalf. The way that they were going about it was undermining the very glory and, and sufficiency of Christ. Now look, hear me out. There's... There's nothing wrong with confessing your sins to others. There's nothing wrong with asking other Christians to pray for you. And I understand that within the Catholic practice, that that's what they really just kind of see it as, just asking a Christian who already died to pray for you, just like you ask a living Christian to pray for you. You know, it, having another Christian pray for you or to confess your sins to another Christian, that's a good thing. But the whole point is to make sure that your hope And your confidence is not in the holiness or the authority of that person that you are asking to help you. But your hope and confidence still needs to be in the supremacy and the sufficiency of the Christ to whom they are praying on your behalf. They're they're praying to the only creator through whom and for whom all things were made. He's the only creator. That's the second thing. If we keep on going, in verse 17, there is a third and related observation. We see that Christ is the only creator and the only sustainer of all things. Look at verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, I'm I'm no scientist, and I know there are much brighter people here in this room with much more knowledge in things like physics. I slept through most of high school physics. Uh, but I think I do know what E equals MC square means, I think. Um, I, I know Einstein came up with that formula. And with it, he figured out that the energy that it takes to hold together one singular molecular atom is immense in proportion. And I know that Einstein, along with other scientists, determined that if you could somehow harness the energy inside an atom, you would possess a colossal amount of energy. We call it nuclear power. So just think about this. Just just think about how an atomic bomb works. And in in, in its most simplest form, because that's really all I can understand, is that by causing a chain of reactions, a chain of reactions of splitting atoms, a massive, destructive amount of energy is created, enough energy to wipe out entire cities. And so when verse 17 says that in him all things hold together, I am imagining Jesus holding together every single molecule and particle in the universe within himself. If just one atom 
holds within itself such immense, unthinkable power, then how much more exists within the one who holds all of them together in him? Christian, brothers and sisters, just glory with me in the supremacy of Christ that is exalted in this text. Verse 15 says Christ alone is fully God. Verse 16 says all things are created through him and for him. Now verse 17 says that by his infinite power he holds every single particle in the universe together. He lacks for nothing. So why? Why, if you are in Christ, if Christ is in you, why would you need to turn to anyone else to protect you? Anyone else to preserve you? Why would you need, why would you even think you would have to contribute anything to the work of Christ for your salvation? Jesus is supremely all-powerful, and that is why he is totally all-sufficient to save you within himself. And that's why the reformers insisted on solus Christus, on salvation in Christ alone, in, in, in who he is and what he has accomplished for you. To put hope in your works of penance, to depend on a papal indulgence, to rest your confidence in your good deeds, that is to devalue and to deny the sufficiency of Christ's work and the supremacy of his power to trust in yourself and your good works to contribute to even just the smallest portion of your salvation is like trying to, to contribute a AAA battery to a nuclear power plant. It's like trying to add a, a, a grain of gunpowder to an atomic bomb. What's the point of that? What do you think you're accomplishing when you're adding to the accomplished? That's... That's why throughout this letter, Paul is baffled, especially if you look in chapter 2, verse 16, he is baffled by anyone who has Christ would then turn and submit themselves under a system of salvation with regulations on what you eat and what you, what you drink and whether you celebrate certain festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. You were just adding to the accomplished. It's foolishness. And the same could be asked of us. What are we doing? If we have Christ, who is supreme and all-sufficient in his power to accomplish our salvation, then why do we look to ourselves? Why do we look to our own performance or obedience to add to what he has already accomplished? Why do we turn to our religious performance as our source of confidence to stand before God? I did my quiet time today. I, I went to church today. Oh, that is why I feel confident before God. Why do we think it's our performance? Why do we think it's our obedience that needs to be added to what Christ has already done to bring us to God? It's foolishness. Our only confidence should be and the only creator and sustainer of all things who has done all that was needed for our salvation. 
If we keep on reading in verse 18, our fourth observation is that Christ is the only head of the church. Let me, let me read that for you. And he is, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. There's a transition here in Paul's thoughts, going from Jesus being the head and source of all creation to now being uh, the source of God's new creation, that is the church. Earlier he described Jesus as the firstborn of all creation. Now he's calling him the firstborn from the dead. That means from among those who will be resurrected to eternal life, Jesus is our preeminent forerunner. To be called the head of the church is to imply that he has ultimate authority. Christ is the head. He's in charge. Now, to be the head also suggests that Christ is the source of nourishment for the growth and maturity of the church. The stress really is on our total dependence on Christ. In chapter 2, verse 19, chapter 2, verse 19, we are commanded there to hold fast to the head. The church is called to hold fast to Christ as its head. To fail to hold fast is really to fail to give him his preeminent place in the life of our church. If we give primacy to a pope or to a bishop, to a senior pastor, to any other human figure or ecclesial body, then we have thereby unseated Christ. We have cut off the head of the church. And you can be sure that any church that does that will eventually shrivel up and die. It's lost its head. That's why. That's why we here at HCC, we insist that there is only one head over our church. That there is only one chief shepherd. I, I might be a pastor. I might be the lead English pastor, but there is only one true leader of this church. And so you must be careful never, ever to give me or to give any other human, any other leader in this church papal-like authority. Any sermon we preach, any counsel we give, any vision we cast, it must all be submitted under the absolute authority of Christ, our head, who rules us by his word. And remember that even the congregation, even the church members, don't hold absolute authority. We here at our church, we are congregationally governed. That means the members of HCC hold the final earthly authority over our church. But even so, we are still accountable to the heavenly Lord who rules us through his word. We are still responsible to let the word govern us. So never forget that Christ, the eternal word, is the only head of our church. Let's go on in verse 19. We're going to see our fifth observation where Christ is presented as the only temple as the new dwelling place of God here on earth. Look at verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You know, in the Old Testament, God, was, God dwelt in just one 
and only one place on the earth. That was the temple. It was unlawful for you to bring a sacrifice to worship him anywhere else. The Lord, Yahweh, did not dwell in the high places. He dwelt in one place, and that's the temple. That's where you met him. Now, now we're told here, though, that the fullness of God dwells in Christ and in Christ alone. We're told here that in the New Testament, he is the new dwelling place of God. He's where you meet God. Worship, worship is still restricted to the temple, just as it was before, but the whole point is that the new temple is no longer a building. It's a person. His name is Jesus. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So when it comes to Solus Christus, the Reformers disagreed with the Catholic Church when it came to the sufficiency of Christ for our salvation, but at least they did agree on something. They did agree on the exclusivity of salvation to be found in Christ alone. On that, they were in common cause. And so that's why you could argue that the challenge is even greater for us as the church today. You could argue that's why the Reformation must continue on in our day, because in our day, both the sufficiency and the exclusivity of Christ is being challenged on the outside of the church and even within. The idea that the fullness of God would be reserved within one person, found within just one religion, that is a highly offensive suggestion to our world today. It's said that Christians are just, just arrogant, just purely arrogant to think that they're the only ones who have the truth. Are you saying that God's not found in other religions? Are you saying that true worship of God only takes place in Christ? Yes. That is what we claim. That's because that's what Scripture claims. And you need to ask, why? Why does Scripture claim it? What is it trying to communicate? You see, Scripture claims that Christians are the only true worshipers of God, not because of the holiness of Christians, not because of the devotion of Christians, not because of the worthiness of Christians. No, Christians are the only true worshipers of God because of the uniqueness of Christ through whom we have the gracious privilege to worship. That's what it comes down to. It's because Christ is unique. He's one of a kind. He is the only temple. He is the only place where you can meet God. And, only, and, and Christ is the only priest through whom we are reconciled to God. That leads to our sixth and final observation found in verse 20. We are presented with Christ, who's our only priest, our only mediator between God and man. Look there in verse 20. And through him, Christ, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You notice how all of us Every single one of us, are, we're all found right here in this verse. This verse implies that all of us, I'm assuming that you fit under the category of all things, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's so encompassing. 
all of us, we were, or maybe we still are, not at peace with God, since it's saying here, peace had to be made. The very need for reconciliation implies that there lies a deep hostility between us and God. Scripture identifies the cause of that hostility to be our rebellious, sinful hearts. We are rebellious by nature. We won't submit to his loving rule, and he is holy by nature, and he will justly punish us for that rebellion. This is why there is a deep hostility. There is an enmity between God and man. But when you're in that situation, what do you do? You turn to a mediator, don't you? A mediator is a go-between. A mediator is a person who helps two disputing parties come to the table to reconcile, to make peace. We need a mediator. And if you think about it, the best kind of mediator is the one who is able to equally identify with and represent both parties. That's the kind that you would choose because you know that he has the best in mind for everyone, for both parties. And friends, this is why. This is the very reason why we claim that Christ stands head and shoulders above everyone else, above all other possible mediators, because only Christ, only he claims to be equally God and man, all in one person. Only Jesus can understand both parties. Only Jesus can represent both parties. Only Jesus is a fitting mediator to reconcile us to God. And notice how this verse says reconciliation was achieved. It says he made peace by the blood of his cross. In other words, it was at great personal cost. So don't lose sight of that. Like, don't, don't let this whole idea of God having hostility towards you, don't let it cause you to commit the greatest of errors, to commit the greatest of heresies. That is, don't let it lead you to deny God's love for you. And don't, don't lose sight of the fact that the very same God that it says has, has hostility towards you, that very same God took on the entire burden of reconciling you to himself to make peace with him, he doesn't ask you to make a sacrifice. He doesn't expect you to sweat and bleed, to work hard at it in order to make peace with him. No, we are reminded right here that our only mediator, the eternal son of God, the perfect son of man, he made his own sacrifice. He gave his own sweat and blood to reconcile you to God. That's, that's love. That's how he loves us. Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. It says here that his blood has the power, it has the reach to reconcile just a few people. Well, no, what does it say here? It has the power to reconcile all things to himself. 
That means there is no need for any other blood to be shed. There is no need for more sacrifices to be made. This is why the reformers were so against the Catholic Mass, the Mass which was being treated as another sacrifice of Christ, another shedding of his blood. The reformers insisted that no, Christ's blood was shed once and once and for all. And Christian, that's a reminder for you too. Isn't it true that very often we beat ourselves up over our sin? We have all these self-imposed ways of, of torturing ourselves when we feel so bad about the ways that we have displeased God and sinned against him. We deny ourselves the comforts of the gospel because somehow that just feels too easy. We feel like we need to pay a little bit we feel like we need to sweat it out a little bit, maybe shed a little blood before we can come back to God. But no amount of self-inflicted penance or contrition is going to assuage the guilt that you feel. It won't bring you the peace that you seek. You've got to go back to the cross. Go back to the cross and discover once again that peace has already been made for you by the blood of another, by solus Christus, Christ alone.